0: Apple presents events at the Apple Store.
1: As a director, Cordova occupies a unique place in the film world. Either you love his work, or you're too terrified to go near it. He's hypnotic because he's hidden. Cordova lives, thrives underground. He's a threat to society because he isn't selling anything. His power exists in the way he reveals us to us. He shows us that no matter who we are, we're all just stumbling around in the dark unable to see but a few feet ahead. Just give in to it, Cordova seems to whisper. Enter the night film. Many people believe that Cordova the man does not even exist. That he's a corporate invention for the masses to consume and fear, like God. I had a good friend who went after Cordova, the investigative journalist Scott McGrath. He wanted to see once and for all what actually went on behind that curtain.
0: What did he find
1: out? I I think we're done here.
0: Please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Nissa Bubba from New York Magazine, and our special guest, author of Night Film, available now on the iBookstore, Marisha Pessel. All right. Uh, well, we're going to begin with you reading. Is that Exactly. The... Yes. All right.
2: Well. I'll be reading a short passage from the prologue. Um, so here we go. Mortal fear is as crucial a thing to our lives as love. It cuts to the core of our being and shows us what we are. Will you step back and cover your eyes or will you have the strength to walk to the precipice and look out? Do you want to know what is there or live in the dark delusion that this commercial world insists we remain sealed inside like blind caterpillars in an eternal cocoon? Will you curl up with your eyes closed and die or can you fight your way out of it and fly? Stanislas Cordova, Rolling Stone, December 29, 1977. Prologue, New York City, 2.32 a.m. Everyone has a Cordova story, whether they like it or not. Maybe your next door neighbor found one of his movies in an old box in her attic and never entered a dark room alone again or your boyfriend bragged he'd discovered a contraband copy of that night all birds are black on the internet and after watching refused to speak of it as if it were a horrific ordeal he'd barely survived whatever your opinion of Cordova however obsessed with his work or indifferent he's there to react against he's a crevice a black hole an unspecified danger a relentless outbreak of the unknown in our overexposed world. He's underground looming unseen in the corners of the dark. He's down under the railway bridge in the river with all of the missing evidence and the answers that will never see the light of day. He's a myth, a monster, a mortal man. And yet I can't help but believe when you need him the most, Cordova has a way of heading straight toward you, like a mysterious guest you notice across the room at a crowded party. In the blink of an eye, he's right beside you by the fruit punch, staring back at you when you turn and casually ask the time. My Cordova tale began for the second time on a rainy October night when I was just another man running in circles, going nowhere as fast as I could. I was jogging around Central Park's reservoir after 2 a.m., a risky habit I'd adopted during the past year when I was too strung out to sleep, hounded by an inertia I couldn't explain, except for the vague understanding that the best part of my life was behind me and the sense of possibility I'd once had so innately as a young man was now gone. It was cold and I was soaked. The gravel track was rutted with puddles, the black waters of the reservoir cloaked in mist. It clogged the reeds along the bank and erased the outskirts of the park as if it were nothing but paper, the edges torn away. All I could see of the grand buildings along Fifth Avenue were a few gold lights burning through the gloom, reflecting on the water's edge like dull coins tossed in. Every time I sprinted past one of the iron lampposts, my shadow surged past me, quickly grew faint, and then peeled off as if it didn't have the nerve to stay. I was bypassing the south gatehouse, starting my sixth lap, when I glanced over my shoulder and saw someone was behind me. A woman was standing in front of a lamp post, her face in shadow, her red coat catching the light behind her, making a vivid red slice in the night. A young woman out here alone, was she crazy? I turned back, faintly irritated by the girl's naivete, or recklessness, whatever it was that brought her out here. Women of Manhattan, magnificent as they were, they forgot sometimes they weren't immortal they could throw themselves like confetti into a fun-filled Friday night with no thought as to what crack they fell into by Saturday. The track straightened north, rain needling my face, the branches hanging low, forming a crude tunnel overhead. I veered past rows of benches and the curved bridge, mud splattering my shins. The woman, whoever she was, appeared to have disappeared. But then, far ahead, a flicker of red. It vanished as soon as I saw it. Then seconds later, I could make out a thin, dark silhouette walking slowly in front of me along the iron railing. She was wearing black boots, her dark hair hanging halfway down her back. I picked up my pace, deciding to pass her exactly when she was beside a lamppost so I could take a closer look and make sure she was all right. As I neared, however, I had the marked feeling she wasn't. It was the sound of her footsteps, too heavy for such a slight person, the way she walked so stiffly as if waiting for me. I suddenly had the feeling that as I'd passed, she'd turn and I'd see her face was not young as I'd assumed, but old. The ravaged face of an old woman would stare back at me with hollowed eyes, a mouth like an ax gash in a tree. She was just a few feet ahead now She was going to reach out, seize my arm, and her grip would be strong as a man's, ice cold. I ran past, but her head was lowered, hidden by her hair. When I turned again, she'd already stepped beyond the light and was little more than a faceless form cut out of the dark, her shoulders outlined in red. I took off, taking a shortcut as the path twisted through the dense shrubbery, branches whipping my arms. I'll stop and say something when I pass her again, tell her to go home. But I logged another lap and there was no sign of her. I checked the hill leading down to the bridle paths. Nothing. Within minutes, I was approaching the north gatehouse, a stone building beyond the reach of the lamps soaked in darkness. I couldn't make out much more than a flight of narrow stairs leading up to a rusted set of double doors which were chained and locked, a sign posted beside them. Keep out, property of the city of New York. As I neared, I realized in alarm glancing up that she was there, standing on the landing, staring down at me. Or was she looking through me? By the time her presence fully registered, I'd already run blindly on. Yet what I'd glimpsed in that split second drifted in front of my eyes as if someone had taken a flash picture. Tangled hair, that blood-red coat decayed brown in the dark, a face so entirely in shadow, it seemed possible it wasn't even there. Clearly, I should have held off on that fourth scotch. Thank you.
0: Well, thanks very much for that, and thanks to all of you for for being here. Um, Well, I'll ask some questions now, and you all can ask some questions uh, in a little little bit, I guess. I was going to ask you first to give us an overview of Night Film, but we've seen the trailer, um, so I, that's that's some of it. Is there any way that you'd sort of expand on that to give people a sense of what's of course. going on in them?
2: Um, Night Film is a psychological thriller about three strangers coming together in contemporary New York to investigate a young woman's death. Um, her father just so happens to be this very controversial figure who's responsible for some of the most terrifying films ever made. So as this band of outsiders forms, these strangers come together, um, they begin to inch closer and closer to not only what happened to this young woman who turned up dead at the bottom of a Chinatown warehouse at 24, but they come closer and closer to unmasking the identity of her father and what basically this family's history is.
0: Um, Out of curiosity, when when you're working on a project like this, um, I'm sure people ask you a lot, what is it about? Do you have a pitch like that, sort of ready to go for people? Well,
2: I (laughs) think, I have thought, I mean, I think very much during the creative process, you're not exactly sure what it's about. So, of course, like, when um, your editor asks you to write jacket copy, you actually have to boil things down and take a step back, but that's absolutely after the creative process. And I like to not pigeonhole what i'm doing in terms of any kind of genre or theme and really just focus on character and what the journey is and then of course like um, being able to discuss it in a a more cocktail party setting (laughs) um, is helpful Um, (laughs) so it's nice to to have a take on it at that point but obviously when you're writing it i think that you just have to keep an open mind and not try to pigeonhole yourself
0: okay Okay. Um, So I know uh, from talking to you earlier that that you, the genesis of this was thinking up Cordova.
2: Exactly. Do
0: you remember a particular moment when that that notion, that character sort of gelled in your head or clicked into place?
2: Well, I think, and I might have mentioned this to you before, um, I think there were two moments. One was I happened to be in Paris promoting Special Topics, my first novel, and I was wandering the streets. I had a bit of downtime, and I happened upon Christie's auction house. And there was this very strange figure in the process of leaving and he was surrounded by handlers and he happened to be wearing a pair of glasses that were very round as if his eyes weren't actually there. I was standing quite at quite a distance so there's something very arresting about his figure and he was accompanied by a young woman who appeared to be his daughter but then I wasn't actually sure. It could have been his girlfriend at the same time and then there were all these handlers surrounding them and there was something about the way that they controlled the environment around them and controlled the street corner and then They they entered this chauffeured car and drove off, and yet there were still reverberations of their presence even swirling outside of the auction house And the way all these other handlers were speaking and then it all sort of dissolved and there was a moment of real gravity with these characters. So just the image of that stayed in my mind. So when I was later doing a bit of research in terms of directors and auteurs and what it means to make a film or to tell a story and to bring people into your organization, orbit for a consolidated period of time. So everyone has this very concentrated experience away from the here and now. Um, and then they go back to their lives. Those two aspects merged and became Cordova. Okay. Great.
0: I should ask you about the, the period of time that you spent studying film. Um, yes. After you had sort of finished um, you know, the publication and promotion and touring and all that for special topics you took some film classes.
2: I did, I enrolled in an NYFA class, New York Film Academy, which is located just at uh, Union Square, and took a two month filmmaking class, really starting at a very grassroots level with a 16 millimeter camera, and then working up to sync sound, and, um, and just having projects that we, we would have to go out and make films in two, three day, this very, uh, consolidated a period of time where we basically got no sleep. And it was just another way to learn to tell stories. And I think having come off the promotion of special topics, I wanted to reset and go back to basics in a certain way before I started off on my second book.
0: Okay, so so you didn't have any particular sense that this... Um that taking these classes and getting getting this knowledge would sort of lead into something, another project? I'm
2: not ruling it out, of course, but I'm not (laughs) quitting my day job anytime soon either. I think um, it was nice to try telling stories in a different format. And of course, everything that I learned from the course obviously pervaded night film in many ways in terms of the establishment of this director and um, what it means to make a film, what it means to make art and the idea that people will give their lives over to the control of this patriarchal, patriarchal figure, the director, and, um, and have this experience. Okay, uh,
0: what, what films uh, in our world would you say seem uh, closest to you to, to what you imagine a Cordova film being like?
2: I think it would be early Polanski, like Knife in the Water and Repulsion, um, more psychological, thrillers versus outright horror movies, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Halloween. Um, I think that Cordova's horror comes from what is unseen, and a dark twist that get deeper and deeper, and um, I was very inspired by repulsion, and I remember hearing some professor in a film theory class talk about the director's eye that's the camera and in repulsion the camera moves at such a glacial pace at times and in the beginning of the movie as it drifts through this young woman's apartment that she shares with her sister um, each object that the camera drifts over takes on a real weight so by the end of the film when the camera is doing the same sinuous snaking through the apartment you see how um, the apartment has become absolutely destroyed and it's very much paralleling her mental state into madness Um, so I think that was really a jumping off point in terms of Cordova this eye that really is all seeing and um, and how haunting that can be
0: Um, you know I imagine a lot of people here are great fans of Special Topics Um, and I can imagine some people reading Night Film and feeling this is a very different book or an attempt to do a very different thing than Special Topics did I can imagine other people reading it and sort of feeling like this is very much of a piece it's definitely the same author I'm curious how different they feel to you
2: They feel entirely in the same universe. I think that special topics also dealt with the dark underbelly that exists between what appears normal and what appears suburban and tranquil. And night film also deals with those dark recesses that exist in our modern world. But I think night film goes much deeper, quite overtly into those dark recesses. While with special topics, it's really refracted through this young woman's experience. And she really has no idea what's going on underneath the surface of this world around her. Um, While night film certainly plunges absolutely uh, wholeheartedly into those dark tunnels. Um, But for me, they're related. I mean, they're siblings, or maybe they're cousins.
0: Okay. I mean, I I imagine a lot of people would have expected your second book to maybe be um, sort of bidding for a kind of um, literary esteem or something like that. Um, Whereas this uh, seems to shoot for for real crowd-pleasing and to give people sort of an an experience that's maybe even a little escapist and Mm -hmm. has that sort of fun to it. (laughs) I'm just curious (laughs) your reaction to that. I wasn't turning into a question. Um,
2: I think that I approach writing in terms of what I want to read. And at the moment, um, 2008, 2009, when I set out writing Night Film, I wanted to find a multi layered story that had a lot of twists and turns that was dark, that would take me on a a journey, but also have an element of fun and enthusiasm. So I really came at it from that perspective as a reader. Um, But I didn't really, I don't think in terms of what critics are going to say or how I'm going to be pigeonholed, literary or non-literary. I mean, I think if you're always, if you have that sort of self-consciousness, then you're not absolutely in the story and you're not following your gut. So um, from that perspective, I wanted to create a dark odyssey with characters on the periphery of society coming together and, and seeking a, a central truth. So I started with really that conceit, and then everything took off from there. OK.
0: Well, can we talk a little bit about the difference uh, in the the writing process between the two of them? Because sure, I I've, understand absolutely. it was uh, Fairly different the way that you went about sort of uh, plotting and, and uh, creating this book versus the first one.
2: Yes, I think when you're writing your first novel, there's such a sense of newness and the belief that you've never done this before. So you want as much scaffolding holding you in place as possible. And so I... Uh, had Excel spreadsheets, and I had really very rationally mapped out what each twist and turn would be, exactly where all of my characters were going, what my, char- uh, what my main character knew versus what was actually going on. Um, but as you write more books, I would think, I mean, I'm only on my second, but um, you just need less scaffolding, and you're more willing to freefall and take jumps and to scale with nothing holding you in place and really see what that exploration is and what you find because often if you allow yourself not to know and to be comfortable with not knowing how things are going to end up then you i think that you reach a more interesting conclusion than if you had just rationally figured it out. So Night Film just had that... That writing process was much more dislocating. And I think given the material, given that it was going to some very dark places, uh, I, I just wanted that sense of dislocation in myself as a writer. But... I have talked to other writers who are on their seventh, eighth books, and they tell me that each book has its own way of being written in its own set of directions, and as long as you show up and are open to not knowing, then um, you can just allow that process to really inform you, and then it translates into the book. Okay.
0: I mean, did you find it pleasurable or challenging to sort of jump into this one without, um, without so much scaffolding?
2: Pleasurable in the sense of being terrified, but just continuing to move. I mean, I think there were moments where, I had seen a documentary about Everest, where one of the mountain climbers had fallen down a crevasse. And I think he was like half a mile down into the earth. And the only thing that saved his life was just to keep making decisions. And I definitely feel that way as a writer. And that he said that that kept him mentally in place. That as long as he was making decisions, they might be the wrong decision. But as long as you're moving forward, you're you're getting somewhere. So even having that sense of dislocation, just making decisions about the narrative, making decisions about my characters, just moving forward, I could always go back and change. And that's how I dealt with not having that scaffolding. So (laughs) it was like ice climbing, basically.
0: Um, I should, we should probably talk more about things in the book. I don't know if I have any questions ready about that, but I'm, mm. I'm curious. What are there any sort of were any parts of it particularly pleasurable to write? I don't know if I can ask that without spoiling anything, but I'm I'm curious.
2: For me, it's much easier as a writer to write internal histories and to internal histories in terms of what might have happened in the past. Um, For example, there's a chapter that's devoted entirely to two warring sisters who are both actresses. I was obviously inspired by Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine. Um, So that, to me, I could write really easily in one sitting. So a riff like that, that has to do with past, that has to do with the history, it's very easy for me to write. It's much harder for me to actually physically move characters through space. (laughs) like Getting them from one location to another, another. I tend to be overly detailed, so I have to like rip it all out later. Like, I have them put one foot in front of the other, they hail a cab, they open a door, they pay the cab driver. So, later I have to go back, and it's like, okay, the reader gets it. Like, they took a cab. That's all I needed to say. Okay. Yeah, there um, some like four so it's hour just, road it's trips. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but it's funny confronting those things. And, you know, some things really flow, and some things are easy and second nature, and other things really require a sort of. Um, one foot in front of the other, powering through, and like, and it, sometimes it feels like laying brick of this, like, of the Great Wall of China, but you just keep going. Okay,
0: well, yeah, uh, you know, in terms of uh, history, is one thing. People who haven't read the book yet should probably know is that you've gone into great detail imagining Cordova's filmography. Yes. Uh, and every one of the you, have, you you said you have plots for every one of the films. Every one, yes. Okay. Yes. Some included, I have actual, right? actual
2: yes. scenes. Others I just have a plot point with like a, a beginning a middle, and end, okay. so some are more detailed than others, but I do have plots for all of them. How long did that process take you? Probably a few months I mean it was before I actually started writing Night film and I just wanted to do a lot of background and character work and figure out exactly what that world was. so when Scott, the main character, is going after Cordova and investigating this woman's death. It, it would just be very natural that certain scenes and snippets of dialogue and costumes just come to him in a really familiar way. And the only way to pull that off is really for it to be familiar to me as the writer. But I also, that is actually the, my favorite part of the job. And it's, it's creating those worlds from scratch and creating a body of work from nothing and, um, yeah. and what would be pervasive and mysterious to me. But I enjoyed that process.
0: And and how about the the character of Scott McGrath, our our narrator? How did he uh, come together for you?
2: When I originally did the book proposal for Night Film, I had constructed it in a way that ended up um, materializing the book. I had all different photographs and newspaper articles, and from that... Way, using all of those different, that paraphernalia, it was giving a sense of what the book would be. And so I had written, I came up with the character of this investigative reporter and wrote some of his case notes. Um, and that ended up being Scott's voice. And I always thought at the time, oh, it would be too, much too difficult to take on a 43-year-old man's point of view. So I'm just doing it for this article and I'll probably choose something else. And I did try different points of view and I kept coming back to this reporter and I realized I wanted the challenge of writing from from his point of view, and it ended up being a challenge, but one that I like to take on. <laughs> okay,
0: well, can I, can I ask more specifically, what, what were the challenges in sort of pegging how he, how he spoke on the page?
2: Well, I think coming off of Blue uh, from Special Topics, which was hyper literate, a young adolescent voice that really Ha- because she had such little life experience, and because she was reading the world around her through all of this, all of these books that she had read, it was very easy for me to write from that point of view. And any time that the plot was slowing down, I could go. I, she could riff on some fictitious book that she had read, and um, and that was sort of a bit of comic relief for me as the writer. But this was much more streamlined and rational. There was no place within Scott's psyche to hide because he was an investigative reporter. He, Unless he'd had a mental break with reality, he was going to remain pretty much in the here and now. So it just allowed me to face certain things that I was afraid of with plot and uh, and character. and. Um, It certainly required me having some of my guy friends read through it and and make sure (laughs) I was at least in the ballpark of a male voice.
0: And um, uh, I guess we should should turn it over? All right, yeah, great. Uh, I have no sense of time, so we'll start with your questions then.
2: Um,
1: so for those who are just getting started as, uh, writers, can you give us an idea of
2: what your discipline is, da- daily discipline writing, and then how did you find your agent and how did you find, get published? Of course. I believe if you're starting out as a writer, you have to write every day. And if you have another full-time job, it's just something that you have to weave into the fabric of your life w- and, and be quite rigid about it. Um, I had a full-time job when I started Special Topics, and I would cram writing in any e- extra space that I had. Um, because I think you have to get into the rhythm of writing and being able to write even when you don't feel like it. I think, uh, having talked to so many other writers, I think the consensus is is that you write even on those very dry days. So I think that would be the most important thing, is that at least to write Monday through Friday, even if it's only for an hour. Um, in terms of finding my agent, I got into the habit fairly quickly of writing something and then sending it off for professional feedback. And that certainly meant getting rejected many times. And um, But each time that I did that, there were always a handful of agents who, and I would send cold query letters basically describing my project and then they would ask to read it. Um, but in each exercise where I did that, there were always a handful of agents who really took the time to walk me through what was wrong with the manuscript. And they would also give me great encouragement of moments where they could see something. And um, I'm so indebted for that kind of response because that really is something that you can take away and keep going. Also, the major thing is to never give up, that if you want to be a published writer, it is entirely possible, at any age, at any time, as long as you have the discipline and the drive. So, that would be my advice.
1: Um, I, I was curious about, you said that Cordova came first, and um, I was curious if you started writing a book from Cordova's point of view, or about Cordova, and then it, and then went back for Scott, or if it was always a guy that was investigating the, myst, the mysterious character.
2: Actually, no, it never even occurred to me to write from Cordova's point of view. I think because I always saw him as an absence. I always felt his, the emptiness of his lack of presence and how powerful that was. I mean, the book is about a lack of presence in the sense, and the mosaic of eyewitnesses and other characters talking about something or someone and how that gives birth to this incredible life. So I always found him as this very strong presence that was not present. Um, And that was always how I conceived him, but even though I had a very strong picture in my mind. um, But night film is about following these crumbs and eyewitness testimonies and how the stories about other people are almost as powerful as their presence, if not more so.
1: Um, Do you want to make this into film? And if you did it as a film, what kind of character would the, the lead be? Like the guy, what would he look like?
2: That's an interesting question. It has been optioned by Peter Chernin through 20th Century Fox. Uh, but I, as a writer, I have a specific view of each character in my mind, and it doesn't have anything to do with a celebrity. It's just um, its a private... Incarnation, really, for me, and I think that that's one of the joys of reading is allowing readers to conceive what characters look like themselves. So I'm leaving that entirely in the hands of the filmmakers. And um, I mean, if they do ask me, I do say I would like John Hamm to audition really badly. So maybe John Hamm for Scott. But um, other than that, other than that, I'm open-minded.
0: I was wondering how much of character development do you do for each character? Like, you said you liked for Cordova the absence of or his like presence being in his absence, but do you have a whole life that you know about him? Like, you know why he's I this did. mysterious person. And each character, when you develop them, like how much do you know their entire life story?
2: I know quite a bit. Um, I had actually conceived Cordova's entire life history. I knew who his mother was. I knew who his father was. But as I was saying before, I really love that process. I have a notebook that I work with, which is basically my Bible for the book, where I scrawl everything um, in terms of these character histories. So not only for Cordova and all of his wives and... um, and jobs that he had had as a teenager. So I I certainly like to do all of that work. And often for my main characters as well, Scott, Nora, and Hopper. um, I just like to have that background so it's very fluid. And certainly you don't always use it But just having it there grounds you in a sense of reality for you as the writer, that these people seem real to you. And then you can just take off, and um, whether or not you ever go into any of that backstory, you probably won't. But I think just having it there pervades the page and and just gives it this sense of reality.
1: Hello. Hi. I know you were talking about you took uh, class at NYFA. Yes. Um, and you got that whole experience. Um, I was wondering, um, did you ever write a screenplay, and um, would you ever consider doing a screenplay? Um, because I think your the the process of how you describe you went about this book is sort of like the same format in writing a screenplay. and I think like your ideas would be, you no, know, very very incredible for that. So.
2: Certainly, I have written a screen. I have written two screenplays. Um, I think every novelist like has to try that at least once, uh, and I think that each story that you end up being captivated by, like, will find its own medium. But I mean, I am a novelist at my heart. I think I like the ability to create and not have anything between me and releasing work. Uh, and immediately having a dialogue with readers and fans, I think. Um, but, I mean, of course, I love film and um, and television, and there are so many diverse ways now to tell a story. And all of those boundaries between each medium are really changing now. So it's quite exciting in terms of being a writer and a content creator, because um, an ability to move between the medium, it just seems um, really possible now. But for me, I like to create a world and allow it to immediately, without having to have a gigantic production budget, really find an audience. So I think, um, in that sense, I'm a novelist, first and foremost. But we'll see what happens in the future.
0: And was that all? I guess that was all we had time for, right? That was it. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much to all of you.
2: Thank you, guys, so much for coming. (laughs) Thank
0: you, Marisha,
1: for, for doing this.